0: Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Zach McCulley, and today my guest is Dr. James Eglinton. James is a senior professor in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh, and he's written a wonderful new book, Bavinck, A Critical Biography, which was released in 2020 with Baker Academic. James, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's very kind of you to have me here.
0: Well, it's great to have you here and, and we're looking forward to hearing about what you've written and, and learning more about the life and thought of Herman Baving. But before we do that, why don't you tell us some about yourself, your background and how you came to work on this project?
1: Sure. Um, so I am a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh. I've been here for the last seven years, uh, so I work as a theologian uh, in this context. Um, before that, I was living in the Netherlands for three years. I, I did a postdoc over there in Kampen. Um, I am Scottish, as you can probably tell by my accent. Um, and how I came to this book, well, I'd studied law as an undergraduate, and then it was after that that I moved into theology. So I went to seminary here in Edinburgh and was a seminarian, just as Bavinck's magnum opus, the Reformed Dogmatics had started to come out in English translations. So I first came across him then and was captivated by the the brilliance of his work and all the different directions that it seemed to be moving in. So I started reading him then, and um, after I finished at seminary, I moved on to the University of Edinburgh to do a PhD on Herman Bavink. It was a PhD that was more focused on Bavink's theology rather than his person, but um, it was a theological project that tried to overturn... um, I guess, pictures of Bavink that had been quite dominant in a lot of the scholarship of the last few decades that had portrayed him as a very intellectually divided figure uh, between some of his different intellectual and cultural commitments. So my first book tried to show his theology in, in a new way, recasting it in in a more united way and showing that actually his intellectual project was maybe more coherent than people had given it, given it credit for. Um, and then I guess the biography grew out of that, almost as a, a sequel to the first book. Um, but instead of thinking about his theology, thinking more about him as a person and trying to retell the story of, of this one person's life.
0: Sure. Well, James, perhaps there there are some listeners who don't know of Herman Bavinck. He's hmm. he is relatively new on the scene, at least in the English speaking world. His Reformed Dogmatics, just having recently been translated from Dutch, as you say. Could you give us an overview of Bavinck's life?
1: Gladly indeed. Um, he was born in 1854 in the Netherlands, so smack bang in the middle of the 19th century, and in a very interesting context because the Netherlands at that point was a very new and young liberal democracy. Before that, for the first half of the 19th century, it was in essence um, a, a, a monarch, a state that was ruled by um, a very authoritarian monarch and a state that didn't recognize um, the full suite of liberal democratic freedoms that we enjoy today so he was born in this new context after a democratic revolution in a society that was trying to work out what does it mean to grant freedom of expression freedom of assembly freedom of religion across the board to everyone Uh, so it's a very interesting context anyway because it's a new world into which he was born and he lived until 1921 so he died um, two decades into the 20th century after world war one in a society that's a lot more recognizable i i suppose to the one that we live in he was a, well he's known primarily as a theologian um, he spent two decades as a professor in a small theological school um, in campen uh, where i did my postdoc and um, in that time he wrote the first edition of became his magnum opus the Reformed dogmatics which we've already mentioned Uh, after that he spent two decades at the free university of amsterdam where he was a professor of dogmatics and then in that period he also then turned his first edition of his dogmatics into a a much expanded second edition which is what we now have in english Um, but his life well we know it primarily as the life of a dogmatician in the english-speaking world but in his own context he had a really rich life and a very complicated life in many ways because he did so much um, alongside his work as a recognizable Christian theologian. He was also a politician. He was the leader of a political party for a couple of years, and he spent a decade as a member of parliament. He was a national newspaper editor, a prolific journalist. He was a leader in, eventually in in the Dutch um, Christian women's movements, for example, campaigning for voting rights for women. Um, he was a Bible translator. He was part of a trio who translated the Bible into then modern Dutch, 19th century Dutch. Um, he was a biographer. He was a poet. Not a very good one, but he was a poet. Um, he was a travel writer and a, a, a travel speaker um, at, a, at a time when that was a very novel thing. Someone would go really far across the globe. Um by ship and then come back and then tell packed audiences about the new world so he did lots and lots of things and um had a some kind of well i call him a polymath in the biography so he had a polymathic quality where he tried to live a very rich and full life in the modern world but tried to do all of that as someone who was very much a theologically conservative orthodox calvinist but who saw his conservative calvinism as as a Means by which to step forward confidently into the late modern world. So he's quite an unusual character, a really fascinating one.
0: Yeah, that's great. Well, you 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 mentioned that you approached him first from a, a theological background. You surely came across literature, secondary literature, that that presented him as <laughs> as as quite a, a conflicted or even contradictory figure. You've mentioned some of that. Tell us how your biography fits into the other literature on Bavink and, and maybe also what contribution this book makes.
1: Hmm. Well, as, as I said before, and then as you just mentioned, when I first began to interact not only with Bavink, but also with people who'd written about him in the 20th century, so this group of, of interpreters, the thing that surprised me initially was to discover um people who would talk explicitly about two Bavinks, about two Poles in his thoughts. And those two Bavinks were what was called the Orthodox Bavink and the Modern Bavink. So what you will find when you read Bavink is this very striking combination of Calvinist orthodoxy that in many ways looks like it's straight out of the 17th century alongside this thoroughgoing commitment to being a part of the modern world. So you'll find him... Um, expressing his belief in, in miracles, for example, or in the in and the supernatural and divine revelation in the Bible as the word of God. And then you'll find him on the next page expressing um, deep appreciation for the insights of modern psychology or his support for what we would recognize as pluralistic liberal democracy um, or the development of technology. Um, so he uh, has this really fascinating combination of those two factors, but a lot of people read him with, with, I think, the assumption that those two things aren't meant to go together, because to be an orthodox Calvinist is really to yearn for um, the early modern period and for a bygone era. And um, to be an orthodox Calvinist should somehow mean that you withdraw from the modern world and you live quite a peripheral social existence. So to find someone like Bavink who doesn't seem to fit those expectations, um is a very interesting thing, but it led people to talk about um, two Bavinks on the assumption that really he just couldn't work out which camp he belonged in. Um, did he want to be part of, on the periphery with the conservative Calvinists, or did he want to be in the center of society with the, the modernists? So that led to a way of reading Bavink in 20th century literature, where people would uh, divide up and annex sections of his work, and they would find sections that reflected um, the, the orthodox Calvinist uh, instincts and commitments and say, that's the orthodox Bavink, The next page is the modern Bavink. um, But I, as a reader, fit into the orthodox camp, so I'm not going to read the modern stuff. That's the Bavink that I'm not interested in. Um, so I was really struck by this, that, that this was the way that people seemed to be reading him. And it struck me as very fruitless as well. This was going nowhere fast. Um, so I st- in my PhD, I tried to step back from all of that and ask questions of his own writings um about whether it was possible that he thought that these two things these two ways of being belong together and my argument developed that he he was trying to do that so my first book tried to overturn quite a lot of the 20th century's bavink literature actually and and it argued that that um that the sources themselves don't support this very divided way of reading bavink and and then i argued that we need to um start afresh with how we think about him and his work. And we need to approach his writings without that assumption in the first place that he's a Jekyll and Hyde theologian. So what's been quite exciting in the field of Bavink studies since then is that there have been quite a few studies, quite a few books that have been written, exploring um, that new reading of Bavink. Uh, so by scholars like Corey Brock, uh, who I think was on your podcast, uh, on this podcast not so long ago, who, who wrote a really terrific book on Bavink's use of Schleiermacher, um, other um, scholars like Grace Sutanto, uh, various others as well who've, who've written works that are starting to explore um, uh, this reunited reading of Bavink, uh, or, or Bruce Pass in Australia, for example, and various others as well who are developing this. Um so that's been really exciting to see that people are starting to get a keener sense of what the reunited Bavink was like intellectually just one figure who's who has this very ambitious project to be an orthodox Calvinist in the modern world um but I think what i've tried to what I've tried to provide to all of that is is the life story um rather than you know really focusing on particular aspects of his thought like how is he interacting with influential modern one modern theologian or his epistemology or his Christology or something like that. I've tried to tell the whole story of the life that, that produces this. So I think that, that's what I've tried to do to um, help us see more clearly the significance of this one Bavink uh, reading.
0: And you know there's there's different types of biography. There are some accounts which are sort of preformed to tell a particular story. Uh, particularly for for religious figures where we see that just this idealized version of the person a hagiography now you've written a critical biography I'm wondering if you can tell us some about what it means to write a critical biography where you're sort of letting letting the sources tell the story for you
1: mm. yes um so it's a quite a deliberate choice on my part to frame it as a critical biography so what does that mean um? so i've read a lot of biographies over the years and also biographies of theologians um in part because i teach courses where we cover lots of different theologians uh, here in edinburgh and um, for a lot of my teaching i i have 10 minute micro biographies of lots of theologians that i present to my classes because when you know the figure a bit more you know the context you realize well theology was never written in a vacuum it's never written to a vacuum it's always written by Real people in historical contexts and written for real people in particular situations. So, I always begin my classes on particular theologians with uh, a microbiography. Um, so, I find biography really interesting anyway, and uh, not just the theologians, I just l- really like biography as a genre. Um, and if you go a little bit further back, a few decades, so into the 20th century, and you look at the kind of biographies that were written you actually find a lot of biographies where the subtitle is a critical biography. So it's, it's it's a pretty, or it was quite a common thing. So a critical biography is an attempt to write someone's life story, to tell the story that uses sources. Um, so it uses primary sources and it uses critical historical tools to look at the sources in terms of their reliability. Um, and you use that to try and Tell a, something like a, a watertight life story that that tells you what you can say about the figure. So you are not making it up; you only say what's in the sources. But also, the sources tell you what you are required to say. So if you find um, something in the sources that shows really disappointing episodes in someone's life, or just failures, things that don't portray that person in a flattering light, you don't have the choice to omit it if you are committed to critical biography. So it's what we quite often hear referred to as a warts and all biography, rather than a rose-tinted biography. Um, But if you look at the kind of biographies that most people read nowadays, they are very often what, in terms of genre, we would call commemorative biography. So it's a kind of biographical writing that is uh, a bit looser with sources, I guess. Um, It's written in quite a journalistic style. It's written according to quite a journalistic research method as well. Um, And they are biographies that very often are exercises in reputation management. Um, So you can think of the the glossy sort of authorised biography where the person um, that the biography is written about has actually vetted all of this and said, yes, this is the picture of me that I want you to release to the world. Um, or we could think of more you know, hagiographical Christian biographies where the biographer has a vested interest in the person's failures because the point of the biography is to inspire you as a Christian reader um, so that it, it really boosts your, your piety or your devotional life. So a critical biography is quite different to that um, because it uses critical historical method. But I actually think that it's it's more useful in many, many ways because it's a, a human tale. Uh, rather than using critical historical methods like this and then producing a very dry picture, I, I actually think that it gives you a much more human picture, something that, that you can really relate to because you're not presenting an, an, you know, a photoshopped perfect human being. You're actually just telling the life story of someone in a way that, that is hopefully historically quite reliable. You're trying to tell the truth about, about your dead historical neighbor.
0: Well, as you as you work through the, the archives, the letters, diaries, tell us tell us how you approached the research for this book. And and what did you find about Baving that, that maybe most surprised you?
1: Mm. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so a lot of the research for this book was based in uh, in person in archives, um, in particular, at the Historical Documentation Center for Dutch Protestantism at the Free University of Amsterdam, Uh, which is just a wonderful resource. So They have a very extensive Bavink archive of um, unpublished manuscripts, um, letters and diaries and so on. I also spent quite a lot of time in the Archive and Documentation Centre in Kampen in the Netherlands, and also the City Archive in Kampen. Um, Archival research was was so incredibly exciting every single day of it, uh, which makes me sound like a real nerd, but it's true. And I I just, I own that. Um, It is like stepping into the past. It's you open these boxes and find astonishing manuscripts that maybe only an archivist has ever looked at before or one or two people ever. And sometimes you find things that where well, you can tell that other than the archivist, no one has ever opened this. And you're there and you're... The, the first pair of human eyes to see this uh, in a very long time and every trip into the archive brings back new discoveries so uh, for me i I completely loved it archival research is is so enjoyable um so that was a, just a, a delight to to do um in terms of surprises there was yeah there were a few things um probably the the, the most significant surprise was the the love story with Amelia Dendecker, which is a really prominent part of the biography. Uh, so I'm not the first Bavink biographer. There are quite a few biographies already, and he's the kind of figure who draws biographers to try and um, put together the tale of his life. There are two extensive Dutch biographies, and neither of them mentions Amelia Dendecker. Um, so she was a woman that, that Bavink was in love with uh, very much so from his teenage years until the age of 31, but he never married her because in that time, you, as a young man, you had to gain the, the prospective father-in-law's permission to get married, and that was a legal obligation. So he was more or less powerless before this um, prospective father-in-law, and he never granted Bavink permission. And under the law of the day, you had three chances to ask for permission so if you if you ask and you're turned down, you need to go away and spend quite a lot of time come, preparing yourself to come back with a more impressive request the next time round. So if you're really set on marrying one person, this could take a really long time for you in your life if you're turned down the first time. And for Bavin, this was like a, as far as we know a 16 year window in his life when he was trying to convince this this man to to let him marry his daughter, and to no success. Um, so the, Amelia isn't mentioned in the first uh, Dutch biography, although it's a very long biography, which was written very quickly within a year of Bavink dying. Um, he, there's also nothing about her in the second major Dutch biography, which came out in the 1960s. Um, all that there is in that biography is one passing reference to how in Bavink's diaries from his youth, you can see, it said something like, you can see that he's a young man who was not aware of the, the charms of the opposite sex but it gives you no detail, and the story itself is huge. It's really significant, Um, and it even sets the stage for why he was a really uh, lonely young pastor who struggled with his singleness, and also why he was so bookish as a young man in, in the phase of life where he was researching his dogmatics, which took a huge amount of work over many years. Uh, and I think the, the Amelia Dendecker story sets us up to understand why and how that happened. Um, but she's not in the previous biographies. I've, I have theories on why that's the case. Um, I think I have much more liberty to tell the story because it's 100 years on. Uh, I, I, I'm not Dutch, you know. I'm not having to deal with um, immediate family members, uh, you know, who might not or who might feel it would be awkward for the story to be told. Um, but it's there; it's throughout his diaries, always in Latin, about this about this girl, about this young woman, uh, from the age of fifteen to the age of thirty-one. So that was a, a real surprise, quite a revelation to me, and also shows him in a very different light as a as a lovesick young man.
0: Yeah. Well, maybe continuing on the on the topic of young Bavin, and you know, you you've done well to I think to to correct this idea in the historiography of of two Bavins. You said earlier on you. Your aim was to tell the story of a man who's whose theologically laced uh, personal narrative explore the possibility of an Orthodox life and a changing world and I think you've you've made good sense of the man in his context but is there a sense in which we could see two bavinks in terms of young Bavink and old Bavink? or, or maybe maybe more specifically did he did he change over time did mm. expectations is his, did his theological positions? Uh, change uh, as he looked at at Christianity and society and that type of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I look back now and think that one of the funny things about my work on Bavink between my first two books on him is that the first book is so adamant that we need to stop talking about two Bavinks. But as you rightly say, the obvious implication of the biography is that I am reintroducing a two Bavinks reading, but rather (laughs) than the Jekyll and Hyde um, pairing from before, It is, as you say, that I think that there are quite distinct phases between the young Bavink and the mature Bavink, which correspond quite well to the two decades when he was a pastor in a smaller theological seminary in a small town, and then the two decades that he spent uh, as a professor in a university in Amsterdam. And then also that was the period in which he spent a decade as a member of parliament. Um, Is there change in that period? I think that there is. But I'll explain the sense in which there is uh, – I'll try and do this, this briefly, but accurately – Bavinck was not um, a radical doctrinal revisionist. So what you find in a lot of modern theologians in this period is that they make a wholesale break with with the content of Christian theology from, the Enlight- well, from before the Enlightenment, basically. So you find quite a lot of his contemporaries who hold on to the language of the Christian faith, but who give it radically different meaning and and for there's all kinds of complex change that occurs because you're as the reader, you're trying to work out what they mean, although the word is still the same, the meaning is very different. So Bavink uh, isn't that kind of revisionist and there, he has a more or less stable theological identity in terms of core commitments in his life. Uh, so he's very committed to, he has a very high view of scripture, for example. He's committed to the the what we call the creedal heritage of the church in terms of orthodox creeds and confessions. Um, but there's within that, there's I think you can see very clearly that there's a lot of development that occurs between the young Bavink and the old Bavink. And those fit together with some of his expectations about the world. So the 19th century. Bavinck in the 1880s and 90s is very much a 19th century figure. Um, his expectation is that in the Netherlands um, there are all kinds of challenges from uh, that come back through the Enlightenment, so some kind of early process of secularization, atheism is a bit more vocal and prominent, um, but society will hold together and it will hold together by us all realising that Christianity is the thing that we need. So although there are conflicting voices and things sound a bit chaotic in the public sphere, it's not going to be too long before Christianity, and specifically Calvinistic Christianity, is the thing to which we all return. And life will be orderly, more or less. Not everyone will embrace this, but enough people will. And, um, and life will be fairly harmonious for us as, as a Dutch society. So that's the expectation of the young Bavink. Um, But then what you find in the mature Bavink is that a radical shift happens at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, And it comes about through the death of the atheist philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, Nietzsche was a a new kind of atheist, so he really pioneered uh, a novel species of atheism, which was very different to the atheism that Bavink had known in the 1880s and 90s. So the kind of atheism he knew in those years Was quite moralistic. So it said, we remove God from the picture, but we um, otherwise keep life as it is, and we continue to have the same kind of moral framework as a society that we had before. Whereas Nietzsche said, if there is no God, why are any of those moral ideas a given? In fact, we have to revalue all values, and we do not know where this will take us. Uh, So after, and and that's a very novel thing, uh, because none of the old moral claims are a given anymore, and you have to Weigh them all up, and you do not know which will which will remain. You really don't know. um So that that and so that kind of Nietzschean thoughts was really obscure in Nietzsche's own lifetime, and I don't think bavink took him seriously then at all. But Nietzsche became extremely popular very quickly, also in the Netherlands after he died, and he died in 1900. So atheism changes, and um you know a big difference between Nietzsche and the atheist that Bavink had known before was that the the older atheist that Bavink had known would basically say, you know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead and he wasn't actually God, but, you know, he's a wise moral teacher and um, there's definitely something to be gained from him. And they might articulate that in, for example, very anti-Semitic ways, but they still think that they're saying something positive about Jesus. Whereas Nietzsche says that Jesus is awful. Jesus has hoodwinked the whole of the Western world uh, and tricked us into embracing weakness. And a servile spirit uh, so for Nietzsche the true hero of the New Testament was Pontius Pilate as a man who acted in strength and self-interest so all of a sudden people are against a growing number of people are actually against Jesus, think that Jesus is the problem and that there's nothing really good to, to be found in Jesus and this is a completely unexpected thing for Bavink that Dutch culture starts to move in this direction and it certainly doesn't move in the direction of you know a pretty stable return to Calvinism for us all um, so, that really changes a lot of things in, in the context that Bavink was working in. And it makes, and I think that it sets us up to see quite a significant shift in his work, which is that alongside the, the writings that he'd done in the previous decades, which were very focused on Reformed theology and Calvinism and advocating that branch of the Christian tradition, he then adds to it this stream of publications and lectures on Christianity more generically. And he doesn't do that, I think, because he's given up on reform theology. In fact, he keeps on um, keeps up this profile as a public advocate for Calvinism, for Reformed theology, right up until the end of his life. But he also starts writing a lot about Christianity more generally, because I think the Nietzscheans didn't really care which branch of the Christian tree you, know, you were sitting on. They were there trying to chop it down at the very base of the stump, and you were all going to fall anyway. So Bavink saw then that you have to have something to say to people who are deeply skeptical of Jesus himself and of Christianity in in, in its totality. And um, if you don't do that, then it's quite a short-sighted view that you have and only being committed to defending your own tradition within Christianity. So that's a really significant development in his thought. And I don't think anyone has written about that before. So I think that's something that's quite new in the biography.
0: Yeah, I think that's really... Really well summarized there. You talk about the the age of Nietzsche uh, ar- arriving and, and what that meant for him as a as a modern Calvinist uh, teaching at at university, mm. and and there also you get you got into some of his some of his writings, you know, um, about Christianity more generally. It's you know he he it wasn't just the Reformed dogmatics, but it was other things, evangelism and such.
1: Mm.
0: Well, it, we're coming up on on the hundredth anniversary of his death. Um can you tell us what is what does Bavink have to say to us today? What what ought readers, maybe Christians in particular, um what ought they notice of of Bavink as they as they draw from history to to inform their own lives? Mm.
1: That's a great question. Um I think there are many, many points in which his life is quite instructive for Christian readers today. Um Maybe if I could isolate two of them and speak about them very briefly. Um, The first is that Bavink approaches Christianity with a kind of holism that I think is increasingly rare today Um, in in the 21st century, uh, the early 21st century, where we inhabit a later version of the kind of postmodern chaos that he saw beginning in the age of Nietzsche. So for Bavinck, it really troubled him all of a sudden when people who lived on the same street, who looked and sounded like him, who had the same nationality and spoke the same language and had the same history, all of a sudden had nothing in common in terms of basic assumptions about the world, about ethics, um, about metaphysics, um, about what kind of future they wanted. That was a very jarring thing um, because of, because you know his neighbours... Not talking about literally his next door neighbors, but his fellow, many of his fellow citizens were willing to move forward into Nietzsche's uncharted waters, and and they were willing to step forward, not knowing where they were going. Um, and for Bavink, that was a, a new thing to have no shared, for example, social or moral imagination with his fellow citizens. Um, I think those problems are, are, at least they they're no less keenly felt. I think in the in the present day across the West, where we have very divided societies and conflicting visions, where we really find it hard to see the good in each other across all kinds of political divides um, and and social divides and cultural divides. Um, and within that, we live in an, an age now of of package deal worldviews, particularly in terms of the polarization of right and left, which you certainly have in the United States, and we certainly have it here in in the UK as well. And within that, it's it's really hard for Christians to remember um, Bavink's argument, um, or at least you know to, to be switched on to it in the first place, that, that Christianity is its own worldview. That's kind of that's Bavink's uh, line. That Christianity sets the terms of its own existence as a Catholic faith, and it's a faith that informs all of life. And it's a faith that makes it very hard for you to fit neatly within any of the current package deals between right and left in our world. Um, so Bavink is a very um, thought-provoking Christian thinker to read for someone in our day, because he, uh, I think if you read him, he really challenges you as the reader um, on precisely that front and the awkwardness of Christians fitting into the package deals of, of a pretty deeply secularized set of Western cultural possibilities. So on that front, he's really he's really significant. Um the second is an extension of that, which is Bavink's own personal example of of friendship with people with whom he could not have been more different. Um so one of the the, the things that's really fascin- that was fascinating to work on in the book was his friendship with a guy called Christian Snooker And on every point. This guy could not have been more different to Bavink in terms of family background. Bavink was part of the like the kind of petty bourgeoisie, upwardly mobile, new middle class. Snooker was a double barrel aristocrat. Um, Bavink was from a very pietistic, conservative, Calvinist background. Snookeronia was from a, a kind of scandalized um mainline church background. Bavink was was a very committed Christian believer. Snooker was a, an arch skeptic who then became a Muslim. Um And their lives are so exceptionally different. And yet they became friends as students. And then they maintained that friendship across the rest of their, well, the rest of Bavink's life and then Snook outlived him. Um, But to look at that kind of a friendship between Bavink and someone who was as different uh, as you could possibly imagine on all of these uh, levels is really interesting as well. I'm just not sure of the stories of many other theologians who had such close uh, and Long term friendships with people who were ideologically so different, um, and where we actually have a really good paper trail of what that friendship looked like. So, for Bavink, um, you know, the, the, the kind of um, commitments to being an Orthodox Calvinist in the modern age aren't just theoretical, they actually work themselves out in his friendships as well. So, I think there, I find Bavink a, a challenging person to read um because of this model of, of what he called critical friendship and the value of it and um how well i think baving and Snooker kronja from their respective positions engaged with each other respectfully tried not to straw man each other really shared a lot of concern for one another across their lives and were and um really encouraged each other to become better people and better thinkers um and again, we we live in a context now where so much of our lives in terms of intellectual exchange are spent on social media and where our friendships are very often quite disembodied. And where all of that is governed by algorithms that herd us into echo chambers um, and where our expectations of friendship are that um, our friends are the people who, who sound like us and think like us. And for the idea of critical friendship in the Bavink Snookrochonia sense sounds like a bit of an oxymoron. I think we've lost out on a lot um, f- because of the kind of context that we live in. Um, when I read Bavink and Snookerkonia, I really yearn for critical friends like that as well. I think that the world that we live in doesn't set us up well for that. So I think there, Bavink also has a lot to offer.
0: I think that's really well put. And James, you know, it's been wonderful to talk with you about. Your book and also the research that made it possible. We've taken up a good bit of your time now, but before we go, can you tell us uh, what you plan to work on next and what readers might expect from you in the future?
1: Mm. Well, I actually just finished um, last week, I finished translating Bavink and letters to each other, uh, which I've been working on for a while, um, but the progress was delayed a bit by the, the pandemic. Um, So they will hopefully be out in print at some point in the not-too-distant future, and they are truly fascinating letters, uh, a window into a a really unique and remarkable friendship. Uh, I'm also currently co-editing a volume on Neo-Calvinism, so that's the tradition that Bavink came from, Uh, so Neo-Calvinism and Roman Catholicism, uh, which I'm co-editing with George Haring from the Free University of Amsterdam and from Kampen, Uh, so that's coming out with Brill um, next year. Um, I do have some other some other writing plans um, that are in a fairly early stage. Um, uh, some of which is on also on, on Bavinck and, and on his neo-Calvinist tradition. Um, but at some point, I would like to try and write a bit more broadly in terms of, uh, of church history and historical theology and, and systematics. So, but those plans are all quite early and quite tentative. Um, but the next couple of things will be the the new Bavinck letters the Neo-Calvinism and Roman Catholicism book. Uh, The next thing that I've contracted after that is um, a translation of one of Bavinck's books called Christian Scholarship. Uh, So that's coming out um, with Crossway, and I'm translating that with two of my former PhD students, Grace Sutanto and Corey Brock. Uh, So that's Bavinck's, um, well, it's a companion volume to Bavinck's book, Christian Worldview, which we translated a couple of years ago which also came out with Crossways. So it's a really fascinating book on, uh, well, Bavink's a kind of what it means to 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 love God in the life of the mind. Um, it's, it's quite a, an intriguing work. So we're, we're working on that as well.
0: Very good. Very good. That all sounds really interesting. But for now, thank you for writing this book. It's called Bavink, a critical biography. It's out with Baker Academic in 2020. And James, thanks so much for joining me on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. I enjoyed talking to you.
0: And and thanks everyone for listening. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network.